Welcome to the Sendcast. My name is Dale Pickles, Managing Director of B Squared and the host of the Sendcast, Special Needs Podcast. Each week, we're going to be talking about a different topic within the world of special educational needs to improve our knowledge, provide support to professionals working in schools, and to empower parents. In a world where there's less guidance, less money, more demand, and lots of changes, teachers, SENCOs, leaders, and parents need a way to keep up to date with all the changes that fits in with their lives. And the SENCAST is the answer. In this episode, our guest is Sarah Jane Critchley, and she's back. She's one of our regular guests, and she's an author, speaker, consultant, and coach. And Sarah Jane will be talking about exclusions, how legal they are, and why it isn't more being done to prevent them. Sarah Jane was previously the program manager of the Autism Education Trust, where she commissioned the AET's Guide to Exclusions. As we all know, pupils with autism are frequently excluded from school for demonstrating distress behaviour. But before we get started, have you heard of the Virtual Send Conference? If you're a new listener, you might not have heard of it, but if you're a regular, you've probably heard of talk about it before. So this is a conference that B-Squared run, which is all about delivering affordable CPD around SEND. We run it twice a year in March and November. Instead of it being a physical conference where you have to travel down to London, the conference comes to you. So it's accessible over the internet and not only come to you across the internet, it's ready when you are. For more information on the conference, visit the website www.virtualsendconference.com. And at the end of the episode, I'll be giving you an exclusive discount code so you can save money when you purchase access. Now on with the podcast. Welcome to the show, Sarah Jane. Hello. So exclusions is a hot topic at the moment. It's frequently featured in the news and the news isn't always good. This is a big topic, but it's not affecting all schools. No, absolutely. One of the interesting things that we discovered when we looked at research about exclusions was that 85% of schools actually aren't excluding any pupils at all. That's good. That is brilliant. So well done to all of you who are in schools and not excluding anybody. Thank you. You are our heroes. So just to pin our colours to the mast from the start, we think that we would like children to stay in schools wherever possible, being educated because that's what school is for. However, that's not always the case and it doesn't always work. And the thing that's really sad and really challenging is that of those schools that do exclude, some are excluding huge numbers of pupils. So there are dozens of schools that have excluded over 20% of their intent. That is a huge number. And there is this thing called zero tolerance, where there are some schools that say that certain types of behaviour are automatically not allowed and will get you excluded or put to temporary fixed-term exclusions very, very quickly indeed. Now, I have a little bit of an issue with this. I'm going to be utterly upfront, and I have a little bit of an issue with it because often the things that they will exclude for are very, very minor infractions. And they can be things that are as simple as not making eye contact. Now, anybody who's been following these podcasts and who's followed me at all anywhere or even just listened to the introduction will be aware that I'm a specialist in terms of autism and I'm very familiar with lots of autistic people and work with autistic people in and out of schools. And one of the things that is incredibly painful for a lot of autistic people is to make eye contact. Now, if you have a system that insists on inflicting pain on a child as a condition of attending, that is discriminatory and therefore illegal. 
So let's just put that out there to start. So my basic position is let's keep our children in school so they can learn and not make rules that are actually tantamount to torture because that's not what schools are there for. And I know most of you aren't doing that. So thank you for being human. I do, I do think a lot of the time, especially those without children, look at a child misbehaving, you blame it on the child. Absolutely. And that's such a big issue. I have seen that T-shirt, which I don't like. And I, I get the understand the underlying message. They might not be able to help it, but it could be normal. Yeah, sometimes the behaviour a child is expressing could be a call for help. Absolutely. Could be a reaction to something else. And you've got to look past what they've done and find out the reason why. And so often it's actually to do with the environment that they're in, not to do with the individual. Yes. So I think... Most of us, if we're put in a position where somebody is doing something to us that is causing us pain and they do it to us repeatedly, we will react. And it is unreasonable not to expect somebody to react. And it is a lack of imagination on the part of the establishment that's looking at them that's saying they're not seeing that and they're not interested in having a conversation about how that might occur. And that's a, a big issue for me. So, are most exclusions in secondary? a rising number in primary. Right. So if you look across the piece, children tend to get excluded more as they get older. So it changes as you get older, although some very, very, very young children are being excluded. We always used to say you'd only ever get people over the age of eight excluded. And then the number, the lower level at which children are getting excluded seems to be coming down and down. And you're getting increasingly younger children excluded for things that generally aren't their fault necessarily. There are different times at which people are excluded, and the most frequent age range to be excluded year nine. Now, what do we know about what happens around year nine and from then on upwards? I'm guessing the key word. <laughs> so it's about the time when they start to choose their GCSEs. Oh, so not the puberty. No, no, well, no. I mean, that happens too. But in terms of the impact on them, if they're excluded in year nine and they're kicked out of school and then perhaps they have to go, if they're permanently excluded, to find somewhere else, they then have a massive impact on their ability to actually sit and complete their GCSEs. That has a full lifelong impact on that child. Okay. So it is scary to me that that is the time at which we are excluding the largest number of children. That, I think, is a, an issue. And oh yes, puberty does have an impact, but that has an impact on all children. You could argue that not all children exhibit the same behaviour. And yeah. schools are used to dealing with children who are going through puberty. They should be able to cope with a range of experience. I suppose as children get older, they have more freedom. They get more time away from parents, way time away from controlling environments, and that's when they start their own choices. And they might not be the safest choices. Mm. That it leads to some of the behaviour in school. Yes, there is something for me about whether behaviour is a choice. So there was a really interesting High Court case in August 2018 where the High Court judge ruled that an autistic pupil could not be legally excluded because his behaviour, which was challenging, did not constitute a choice. Because he was autistic, he was not capable of choosing that behaviour. That was a reaction due to his overwhelm and his stress and the lack of adaptation in his environment that caused him to behave in that particular way. So the High Court judge ruled that that was discriminatory and that it was. 
And the thing that is now different is that schools have to make reasonable adjustments. They have to make an attempt to accommodate a disabled child before they are allowed to exclude. Now, unfortunately, the reality is that that may be the law, but not all schools are behaving legally. And that is a whole different kettle of fish. So you've mentioned that child with autism behaviour not being a choice, yep. I suppose, but you also get situations where life at home is not great, life out of school is not great, and they're, they're at bubbling, boiling pot. Hmm. They're in school, and it's that one last thing, which is them over. Yep. Now, in theory, some might say that they chose to explode at that moment, but then you can also say that they couldn't cope. That was they had no choice. They'd had enough. They couldn't cope with it anymore. They also didn't have the skills to get themselves out of that situation. So they don't have the skills. They can't cope. Being punished. Hmm. There's a fantastic piece of work done by Dr. Ross Green, who talks about the explosive child, and he talks about the difference between children who can will and children who can't won't. So it's not about whether they're choosing to. It's whether they have the skills and abilities and resources in order able to do that. And there is a big question to me about what education is for. If you think education is just for the gathering of facts, then how children behave can be described in a very narrow way and that might be acceptable. If you think education is to produce people who have an understanding of how to function in society, who are able to contribute, who are healthy and happy individuals, then that's a different sort of education, in which case schools have a responsibility to support the whole development child. And I would argue, actually, that if you're only looking at a fact-based, very reductive version of what you're aiming, you're not going to get people who are going to be decent in society because they're not going to be producing the right things. I won't argue about who they might end up like because that might be discriminatory and I might end up sued. <laughs> I just thought education was there to make us especially in league tables. Ooh. I think we need one of those sound effects that says, I'm going to be provocative now. <laughs> That's the problem. It is that pressure. And I see lots of things I see on the internet where people are going, thank you, school, for teaching me all about Pythagoras' theorem, differential equations, all this amazing <laughs> stuff, but not how to work out how much, like how to budget all the actual life skills. Anything you really need to know. You know, you're just kicked out with all this amazing knowledge on all the reasons behind various things in history, but not actually what you're going to do, how you're going to afford it, living with so many other things. And also just the life skills for getting on with other people. Absolutely. And when you look at league tables, one of the scariest things is the, the countries that do best at league tables are also those ones that have the highest suicide rates of children. Ah, so, so Norway's quite high up. But what, if you look at things like Singapore, that's incredibly high up. Yes. And they've got incredibly high suicide rates. So you just, it's not a sense of, to aim for. That's not all it's about. And if you look at the way that Norway's arranged their education system, they're far more holistic in the way that they approach things. And they start school much later and they have much more emotional schooling. It's a different way very of different. teaching. And it's a very different family makeup. Yeah. So it's, it's not just one thing. You can't take one thing from Norway and stick yeah. it in here. It's like Singapore maths, stick that here, we'll fix up. It doesn't work. There's a lot more around the edge than that one thing. It's a big culture change that needs to happen. Absolutely. Is there a link between mental illness and exclusions by any chance? I think there might be. I'm so glad you asked that question. It's almost like we set that one up in advance. <laughs> there is a really strong link. So there was a really good piece of work by Professor Tamsin in 2017, and she looked at the link between exclusions and mental health. And there's a 
bi-directional link. That means there's a link both ways. So if you have a mental health issue, you're far more likely to be excluded. If you're excluded, you're far more likely to have a mental health issue. The two things feed into each other. Now, that's not a great surprise because if you have poor mental health, you may not be behaving in a way that other people would expect. So therefore, your behavior could be misinterpreted. That's the first thing. The second thing is that if you are excluded, you're far more likely that distress to be amplified. Because being out of school is an incredibly stressful experience. I did some work with a, a group of families and I was talking to them about exclusions. And I asked them what it, what it was like for them. And they said a number of really interesting things, actually. They said that for the family, it caused them enormous practical issues. It caused them financial issues because they weren't able to work. They had to stay at home to take care of their child. It meant that there, were, there was an impact on the siblings and the wider family because they were from that family, the one that had that kid. They had issues around anger, exhaustion, frustration, uncertainty and relief. It was a relief to be out of school because it was such a difficult environment for their child to be. And that actually it was easier to be at home than it was to be at school. For the child, they found that there were physical problems. So they weren't getting out much. They weren't getting the exercise as much. They weren't being social. It's a very different experience. They were confused often. They didn't always understand even why they've been excluded. So if you don't know and understand what it is you've done wrong, how can you not do that again? That's a fundamental thing that should underpin any behavior or change, surely. And they also said that it, what it did was it negatively reinforced your experience. So you were more likely to do the same thing again than to actually correct that. So surely the principal idea behind any intervention is to change something you don't want to happen, to improve something you do. It doesn't work. It just fundamentally doesn't work. They said that it left them feeling worthless and that they felt really ashamed. And that lots of them were actually suicidal as a result. So really profound effects on these young children, some of them who are very young. And that what the uh, Professor Tamsin Ford found was that being out of that situation was a relief. Actually, being out of the school was a relief because that was such a difficult place for them to be. And that the thing that really worried me is that she found that even a small fixed-term temporary exclusion had a long-term psychological impact. So as much as two years later, the child was still distressed as a result of being excluded two years before. So it's a bit of a no-brainer for me that if the people who are excluding are those who already have a mental health issue, you have to ask yourself if it's the right thing. So maybe it isn't someone with a mental issue. What if it's somebody else? So, okay, who else gets excluded? Let's ask ourselves that question. So the other people that get excluded more are boys. And the other people who get excluded more are those with SEN. And the other people who get excluded more are those who are from a lower financial, socioeconomic background. So if you're a poor black kid with SEN, you're on to a loser and you're far more likely to be excluded than somebody who's white, middle class or better and female. And that is just not just. It has to argue that if that's the case, there's nothing fundamentally different about that group of people, except that they're not being given the same opportunity. And I'm just thinking that certain stereotypes happen at certain ages and you think that makes behave. But when you're looking about a child, turns black, needs. Yep. How could a child of that age be that different to a white girl without 
haven't got that much time. So it's, it's not really them. It's the perception that people have put on that child. And it's really interesting because I was talking to a group of parents, I was talking to some foster parents that I was doing some training with. And I mentioned this statistic and they literally blew up because it was a very mixed racial group. And they were saying, this is exactly our experience. You know, it is institutional discrimination. But we know that if you have, see a black lad who's being a bit louder, then it will automatically be assumed he's being aggressive. But culturally, he's meant to be a bit louder. And so he's being misinterpreted without that ever being anything to do with his behavior. It's actually just the perception of that behavior is different. So I think this is an issue, and I do hear from black and minority ethnic communities who, are, who can be black or white or from any other ethnic background, that they do definitely feel that they are discriminated against in terms of exclusions, and that is their reality, and that it's a battle that they shouldn't have to fight. I think if you're a child who's been excluded and your parents have never been excluded, mm. parents are going to go, how bad are you to be excluded? Let the family down. It's just going to add another level of stress because mm. parents probably don't understand what actually it might not be tiny. Child might not help it. They're just looking at this is the worst thing you could. How yeah. could you let the family down? They're going to punish you. We've got to monitor you much more closely. Therefore, as you said earlier, they don't socialising kind of under house arrest. Mm. They've been so bad, and that one thing that they might have been in control of now leading to relationship in the family disintegrating. Trust isn't. The thing is, you often get different interpretations. So if you have a family where both parents are still in the home, which is often not, then you may have different reactions to an exclusion. So often the people I talk to have a mother who understands the child in a different way to the father. The father may have less experience with their child. They may not understand the interpretation of their behavior in quite the same way. Often mothers tend to get that better. They tend to understand their children more because they spend more time with them. Not that they're inherently any better or worse at it, just that it, they've got more experience and more hands-on time. Thanks just for clarifying. No, I was just I was trying to be really <laughs> clear before I can have people writing in saying, this woman's sexist. Well, maybe, but you know, that's just more exposure time. And in my experience, men tend to be more black and white in their interpretation of behavior than women tend to be. Now, that's not always the case, and it is culturally variable as well. But if you have a difference of view, that doesn't always happen. If you have a difference of view, that then puts additional strain on the family as well. You've not only got the family under pressure because there's an element of shame. My child's been excluded. That shouldn't happen to us. You've got an element of you think we should deal with it this way and I should deal with it that way. And that's a huge stress on any family. If you've got a child with special needs, particularly that's an issue and the amount of divorce and family separation is much higher in those groups because there are issues about parenting full stop. You add an exclusion onto that and you're basically throwing fuel on the fire. So it makes life really, really difficult. If you haven't got two parents at home and the child's been excluded, it's going to be even more blame going yeah, on absolutely and more destroying that relationship and trust and that child's safe happy place mm. kind of disappears yeah, and if you've got a parent who actually understands the child and is backing them up because they know something else has happened so often if you've got a child with SEN and something happens it can be as a result of bullying. for example let's take this as an example there was an example that I know of where a young man who was autistic 
took a mallet into school and hit two other pupils over the head. They ended up in A&E quite seriously hurt. The child was excluded. That was appropriate. That was an appropriate exclusion because it caused serious injuries to other pupils. However, the young man was autistic. The two people he attacked had been bullying him for three years or more consistently. They had threatened to kill his dog. His dog was the one thing in the world that he had a really close emotional relationship with, and these two lads had threatened to kill his dog. The school had not appreciated the level of bullying. They hadn't intervened. They'd taken no action. He felt pushed to the edge, and he did the only thing that he needed to do. Now, he had to be excluded because of the action, but it was a failure on behalf of the school to not spotted that first, and it let everybody it really Can I just guess that there was obviously no bullying in that school? That generally, seems to be the phrase that always happens. They take bullying very seriously and there's none in the school. I can't say that. I don't think that's the case. I've never heard them actually say that. I, I, I've come across that one a lot. I have come across that one. That wasn't the case in that school. And it, it was an outstanding school. And it is also true that outstanding schools fail some pupils. I think that's fair and reasonable. And I think it is not reasonable to assume that any school can get it absolutely perfect for everyone. And it is the case that catastrophic things will occasionally happen, even in the best controlled environments. But in this case, I think it's a failure. Yep. My issue is that, as you said earlier, so often it's the responsibility to put back onto the child. And I think it's really unreasonable. Haven't got the skills. Yeah. And often it's the teacher, an adult, discussing it with a child. And it's never a fair conversation, no. generally. Occasionally it might be. Not always, but most cases, it's always adult estimate the child is making the story. doesn't realise, or it's never as bad as the child makes it out. All that sort of stuff kind of happens. And that is a big issue. And bullying is a huge issue. And sometimes people will just retaliate. And often if you've got a child with SEM, what they'll do is they'll do the retaliation and may lack the social skills to hide it, whereas the child without SEN would do it where nobody's looking or do the provocation where nobody's looking. And then all of a sudden the retaliation is seen, but the provocation isn't, and then they get into trouble. So, I mean, it is complicated. And occasionally schools do get it really right. So, for example, my son was really badly bullied. He was actually thrown in front of a car. It was outside school. Other people saw it. He reacted. And he literally clonked three children at that point and damaged them. He split their legs. But, you know, he was reacting to something thrown in front of the car. It's only because other people have seen him and the school acted brilliantly. You know, so there are times where they do. They reacted brilliantly. They took statements from people. They had independent statements from other people who were walking around at the same time. Six forms have seen it and went in to report it. So sometimes schools can do this really, really well, and that's a real opportunity, and that changed the way that the school worked for him. Did it mean that he never got bullied again? No. But did it mean that he felt that there was capacity for him to be better supported and feel safer in that school? Yes. So I would say that his reactions after that were markedly lower than they had been before when his allegations of bullying weren't being taken seriously. So it's a big issue. The little thing you said in there that a sixth formers went and reported, others yeah. went and reported, which then that's a whole school ethos thing that they're looking out for each other and reporting it. Whereas yeah. I think in some schools, when something happens, it's said. Yeah. 
that's a whole big e- whole school ethos issue that you want to make your school open and when things happen that actually someone's going to be listened to. Yeah, and they did that brilliantly. They did that bit of it brilliantly when it got that serious. <laughs> you know, it kind of, there was a lot of things that happened that weren't picked up in the same way, but you know, they did that really well and all credit to them. They responded really, really well. So earlier, you, well, we started on the fact that 85% of schools don't exclude. Yes. Is that a postcode lottery? That's a very good question. So if you look at the statistics about who excludes nationally, there's such a lot of variation. So it's not about whether children are any more good or bad in any particular place, because actually I think children are fundamentally human. So fundamentally the same everywhere. may just express that in slightly different ways. I think that's definitely but the areas that are excluded most at the moment are, I think, the northeast. You know, it's very regional. Right. And it's very, very variable from one local authority to another. So you can have a local authority next to another one. One hardly ever excludes and one excludes all the time. Yeah, because I think you've got that school ethos yeah. and you've got the local authority ethos. And yeah. when you're going to, as a teacher, as a SENCO, you've got a child where the situation's happening, you go to support. How you get that support, support you get is really going to, determine how the next time we make a decision if you actually have an issue with a child and you've recognized it is a call for help and you've gone for support and there's nothing or it's negative you're going you might not go for that support time you might have given up and that's again these two exclusions rather than actually trying to get the right outcome and a lot depends on the school leadership as well so i was really captivated because i saw a film from school in thanet i'm sure it's in thanet out in the wilds of Willie Kent, as wild as they get out there. And they got a really, really deprived community, you know, a community where children went eating, where they were very, very deprived financially, where they got lots of children who were subject to exploitation, who were involved in gangs. And the way that they actually drew them back in was that they accepted that they were never going to let that child fail, that they were the one community that was going to bring them back in and that they had food banks, they'd help families, they would do anything that they could to keep the child in. And when they had that great, I'm going to swear now, Ofsted come to visit. I'm sorry, I said the O word. Didn't get my bleeper out. You haven't got your bleeper. <laughs> when they had them come to visit, they actually put the Ofsted inspector in with one of the groups who were actually dealing with the gang recovery. And she came out so impressed and said, what you're doing there is life changing. And that, I think, is really important. We need a bigger view about what we're trying to do in schools. It's not about five grades GCSE. That's not what school is about. It's about preparing people's life well. But that takes a brave... Well, full credit to those who do it. And it then takes them... It might get the rest of the school to leave. So I've, I remember hearing of an academy in London. Yep. Got put in special measures. Yep. And that, of course, meant high-achieving pupils basically left that school and elsewhere. And then all the children excluded from all the other schools went there. Yeah. The school actually got even worse. And they got a new leader in, a new head teacher in. And that head teacher sat down, every child, every parent, got them all to sign contracts about the behavior, the expectations, and they won't let anyone down. And this was the head teacher who did this with every secondary school so mm-hmm. that's not a little job thousands of people thousands and he sat down with everyone gave the same speech and enthused every parent every child and i think something like 
three years, they got to outstanding. Oh, fantastic. And that's not a, a Band-Aid on it. No. That was that head teacher from the ground up leaving, mm. knowing the right thing to do, not pleasing Ofsted, yep. not pleasing a league table, knowing actually it's the children that matter, putting that effort in, getting the whole school to believe and getting, getting those teachers you probably saw that behavior shouldn't be accepted. Mm. And actually, it's got them to be more flexible. Yeah. Realize that actually, as you said earlier, sometimes that's a cultural, it's a cultural reason that child's doing that. And actually, it's not how you're perceiving it, it's not how it's intended. And just changing all of that misconceptions and prejudice and changing it all around and building the relationships, the, that relationship between the teacher and the children, building that all up and just transform, transferring that school. Absolutely. It was just phenomenal to hear, absolutely inspirational. And I think one of the things we need to do is to give people credit for doing that. We need to actually enshrine the fact that that's one of the things we're aiming for. We're aiming to capture people. We're aiming to give them another chance. We're aiming to give them the skills and the abilities and the future that they deserve. Because often it's the people who need it most who are getting least. And that feels to me a really unjust position to be in. And it was really interesting to hear the comments of Anne Longfield, who's the Children's Commissioner, and she said that the story, when she was looking at exclusion, she said the stories I hear from families involved are so consistent that they could almost be a blueprint. A child with high needs, excluded for disruptive behaviour, precipitating a decline into violence. Many parents I meet identify exclusion as the point at which children move from the periphery of gangs to full membership. Now, so it's that moment where as a school and as a teaching group, you have the capacity to change a life or lose it. And that is such a scary thought. I mean, the things that some teachers do are phenomenal, are amazing, and we need them to do more of that. And it is that disruptive behaviour. So it, to me, it comes down to head teachers are still judged on those league tables, yeah. which means they're going to pressure all the teachers. And... Teachers, in reality, are choosing between supporting a child who's disruptive or removing them from the classroom to make sure their grades remain. And if you turn it into that black and white image, that's what you're looking at. It's not a nice thing to talk about, but that's often where you're putting. But teachers can't just turn around and say, I'm not doing this. Because she's still got all that pressure from above. It's a, it goes back to the whole ethos and that leader again. It's got to come from the top in that school and even in the authority. Schools have to accept that our children are disruptive. What can you do about it? I did hear about, not quite disruptive, but it was a child with Tourette's. Mm-hmm. And what they did, his, um, what he was after, and they looked, they made him, I remember, like the captain of the cricket team. Oh, yeah. Brilliant. I can't remember what it was. It was captain of something. And it was then his job to go around and round up all children. Yes. And obviously, a child with Tourette's chasing them around. They made sure they got there. <laughs> Some of the parents complained. The language, right. disruption, not the best. Not that's what my child wants to hear. But I don't know what it was, but basically what happened is no one ever missed practice. Mm-hmm. And I think that school went on to win that year. Excellent. So sometimes it, you might see it as disruptive, but sometimes that child is disruptive because they haven't got they don't belong to anything. They're, they're lost. If you can sometimes give them something, that disruption might come down. Yes. And then it's that reasonable adjustment. So 
yes, that child has Tourette's, therefore that's going to happen. And that's, we can't change that. But then it's also a chance for the children to learn that this child can't change that and it's not meaning what he says, he can't help it. And there's lots of things you can do rather than just going straight for a punishment. And I love the way you've described that because that's actually giving responsibility to somebody to do something. And it's tapping into a strength and a skill that he might not have known he had otherwise. There's a wonderful technique that I've heard used in schools, which is called the, the purple folder technique. I don't know if you've come across that. It may not be a purple folder in all schools. All other colours are created. So the idea is that if you've got a child who's rumbling, so you know you've got a child who's beginning to get a bit out, dysregulated, a bit out of control, maybe they're not responding appropriately, you can give them a folder and say, right, Joe, I need you to take that down to reception. So there's the purple folder. The purple folder has a piece of paper in it that says, Please hand in this, this form to reception. It goes to reception. The reception staff says, oh, hello, Joe, how are you doing? And then they give him the folder to bring back. By the time he's returned this folder, he actually hands that back in and has had a chance to go and have a walk, a chance to calm down. It's space, it's time out, it's time to breathe. And he's actually been able to do something useful. So that's a, a strategy that's so, so simple. And sometimes it's just as simple as that to get some down. Just by seeing it before it happens, rather than it becoming a big thing, by yeah. seeing it and de-escalating it with that simple thing, just transform that situation. Yeah. Doing that again and again will just bring down and it will change the outcome for that child. Absolutely. So there's a lot of issues that happen around lunchtime. Lunchtime can be a big trigger time. So it's, it's unsupervised time. It can be loud. If you've got any sensory issues, you can have sensory issues around sound. You can have sensory issues around smell. Have sensory issues around proximity, too many people in the same place. Have sensory issues around taste, not liking what's there, finding that difficult. So managing that presence and giving them an alternative place to be, somewhere quieter to sit, maybe a responsibility where they've got to take something in or move something around or take a register back or you know something to give them another responsibility is a fantastic thing to do. Also, as children, be easily manipulated. Oh yes, very very vulnerable. Yeah, so they will be made to feel they have to do something, all this stuff. And it, they don't mean it, they don't intend to. They're trying to fit in. Right. And you can't blame them for that. And if they're not sure on right or wrong, that pressure's there, they will, take, they will be the entertainment for other children. Yes. They will get the punishment. And it's, again, being aware of that. And it comes back to a previous podcast we did on autism, that masking. Yeah, masking's a terrific thing. And children will do a lot to fit in, especially teenagers, when they hit that sort of puberty part and they, they're trying to jostle for position, they're trying to work out who they are and how they can fit and what their role is in life. They have to have a, a constructive way or a slightly less constructive way. And my worry is that some of our most vulnerable children who start off being vulnerable are made even more vulnerable to the exclusions process. And there are concerns that when, when they are excluded, they're that much more vulnerable to by gangs so if they're out there are gangs that will prey on children who are not in school they know they're not in school they can see that they're there they can tell that they're actually desperate to have something to do to fit in to not feel ashamed to feel like they have some status and then if they get into the gangs they're basically on an escalator to failure just to be clear gangs isn't something you start when you're 16 no it happened much earlier I've, I've heard stories with the local authority children seven either going into gangs yep. or transporting drugs mm. gangs 
So it's not something which happens much older. It happens at a much earlier age. And again, it might be one of the things that you might not realize. Parents might not realize. And I suppose it all comes down to, in those sorts, you look at change. Mm. If you've learned that child, which again, I think in primary school, getting to know a child, noticing that change is quite easy because you're with them the whole year. Yes. I think in secondary school, you spend so little time with each child and there's so many children, it's harder to spot that change. When that child's becoming distressed or things are changing, it's harder for one person to notice. That's probably why they slip through the gaps more. Yeah, some schools do that quite well, though, by having things like nurture groups or having vertical integration. So they have people from different years actually taking care of each other and having some mentoring relationships. So that can be quite nice because it gives you a sort of stable family-type structure, even within a really large secondary school. I've, I've heard of schools do that. So my daughter's school is, she has a tutor group, which is just her yeah. year group. Another secondary school, they have that group children from every year mm. sounds to me i can imagine going into year seven that's really intimidating yeah it's probably yes the first week is intimidating but then you have a family of every age yeah and as you were looked after you will in turn look after those who follow yes and it gives a sort of sense of responsibility as well potentially so i think that can work quite well sometimes it works brilliantly some doing that really well which is nice to know, isn't it? When you come to look at all the stats, you think, oh my God. So one of the things I've seen a lot of over the last year, when I saw my first video, I was in absolute shock and disgust, is isolation. Yes. Yeah. When I was at school, isolation meant sitting at a desk outside the head teacher's office. Mm. They don't have enough desks for that anymore. <laughs> that's because the corridor's not big enough Dale. they can't fit everybody in but now I see these tiny cupboards yeah. with nothing in there they put the child in and then they lock the door well they don't always lock the door so it depends on I've how seen... they're done and so there are schools that have a set of isolation booths and they're basically like cubicles you remember those pictures of people working in the states in this thing where they say they're living in a cubicle yep. but actually those ones are actually lower and people can get up and walk around and leave at will that's the difference so it's a bit like a quiet life yeah Same. but worse i like libraries i train as a librarian you're not going to be nasty about libraries no, but it was that whole you're quiet you move around and you've got your desk but that's not the videos not i've this. seen this is not the isolation booths we're talking about so the, there is a campaign now called ban the booths and the reason why people are upset about booths is that they actually have quite a catastrophic effect on when people end up in them. That it is actually a sensorily empty environment. So a child goes into a completely blank booth at the beginning of the day. They stay there all day. They are only allowed out to go to the toilet when they're accompanied. They have their lunch there on their own. And then they leave at the end of the day. Now, it is accepted that that might be a reasonable technique for a very short period of time government's guidelines on exclusion, internal exclusion, are that that can be an appropriate thing to do for a short period, allow a child to re-regulate themselves and calm down. Is there a definition of a short period? No. So there's, there's a couple of interesting points I'd like to bring out here. Firstly, it's a little bit of personal experience with this. My lovely boy who did the same thing, the boy who was thrown in front of a car, in one of the previous instances, had had a bit of a contretemps with another and end up plonking them, end up in internal exclusion, which was appropriate for what he'd done. 
it was for a very short period, just a day. And he came home and he, I didn't know that this had happened. His year tutor rang me and said that this had happened. So I had a conversation with him. said, can you tell me what happened? And he told me. And I said, how was that you? What did that feel like? He said, oh, it's brilliant. He said, it's quiet. No one interrupted me. There was no one pushing me. I could just sit there and get on with my work. It was brilliant. I thought, hold on a minute. So if this is designed to stop him from doing that which he was doing, it's a punishment. Is that going to work for him? No. So it didn't work for him because it was actually a preferable environment. It was a safer environment than where he felt he was most of the time. So if even on a short-term basis, I would query the effectiveness. Then if you look at people who are in that a lot, there are examples where that really is not appropriate. So there was an autistic girl who ended up in isolation for over 280 days. 280 days, yes, I know. Isn't there 195 days in a school year? She was in for a heck of a lot of the time. Wow. And she tried to commit suicide. It is not an appropriate place to keep people. The government accepts it's not an appropriate place to keep people. Says so that is not an appropriate place to that as a technique. I would argue that that is not appropriate education. There are, the Ban the Booze campaign has a lot of behind it. It's started up in the West. I can't remember exactly where. Sheffield Hallam, I think, was a centre for it. There was a campaign on Hallam Radio. And they identified that actually uh, an isolation booth is more severe than solitary confinement is for prisoners who are incarcerated. So you could argue that it is against a child's human rights. It's all about um, rehabilitation. rehabilitation. So with a external exclusion, yeah. you're often doing that, as you said earlier, that child with safety. Yeah. So there's things like that. I can see why you do that. Yeah. I'm trying to work out the exact benefit. There's the question. You said it's sensory, mm-hmm. it's the social, it's the emotional. Literally, nothing is good in that situation. It's not helping that child. It's not a case of someone sitting there and talking through what happened. Nope. Hopefully, that does happen. Hopefully, more than just 10 minutes, not just once either. It's kind of just, let's get it out of a teacher's hair. So, there is an argument that teachers have to be able to teach and that one child cannot be allowed to disrupt the learning of everybody. So insofar as that is a point, I can kind of understand why a teacher might need that. I would argue there are better ways of dealing with it than doing isolation booths. And there are a number of different things that some schools have tried and that work better. So please, let's talk about those. Can I just go back to 280 days in isolation? First three didn't work. Then why would the rest? (laughs) Why would the next 277? Children who keep going back, it's like, surely you've learned this doesn't work. Yes. Surely after a certain amount of time, like when your child won't go to bed, yeah. at some point you will change for a different tactic. What's the definition of insanity, isn't it? Doing the same thing again and expecting a different outcome. Yes. And why would we do this? Why is this a good thing to do? How do we think this works? What could schools do instead of an internal exclusion? So there are lots of different things that they can do. So we talked about de-escalation processes. That's a really good way of doing it. So understanding de-escalation is a key thing. Understanding the needs of children in the first place, I would argue, is the best place to start. So 
Having a school that understands special needs is a good place to start, knowing that so many children who are excluded have special needs. I would put my hand on my heart and say every single school in, the, in England should go and do the AAT training because I think it's fantastic, because I think it's good practice for all students, and it gives you a basic understanding of special needs and how to accommodate children who have different needs better. Fantastic. Go do that. So other things that you could do that would be helpful, they'd love me. I don't even work for them anymore. I'm still, <laughs> still flogging the best training in the world. So other things that you can do that make a huge difference, there's a lovely program called Thrive. And Thrive is designed to help fill the gaps in skills and expertise in terms of a child's development. So giving them the skills to be able to behave differently. We talked about them, that not being an option because they didn't know how. So that's one of the things that can work. I would argue from an autism-specific point of view that it has some particular elements of it that make me feel a little bit uncomfortable, which are that it, it focuses on eye contact, and we've already spoken about how that can be really aversive for autistic people. And it also is very gender normative. So it insists that boys behave like boys and girls behave like girls. And in these slightly more enlightened times, I would hope that we would allow people to be whoever they need to be and that that should be part of any intervention. It may be that it's come on since I looked at it last. I really hope that's the case. But when I looked last, that was, those were my reservations. There are other things that schools could try that have really worked in schools. One is called restorative justice. Love restorative justice. So somebody did something to you that you don't like. So we're going to sit down and discuss why clonking them on the head might not be the most appropriate way of persuading them not to do that again. And have a conversation with them and why did you upset me in the first place? How could we do this differently? Have that conversation when everyone's calmed down. And then it's a learning process. It's not a punitive process. It's a skills building process. I think that's really important. Other schools have tried nurture groups and do that as a regular part. Some primary schools particularly have had great success with having family breakfasts and family meals. Because often if you have catastrophic, catastrophic, that's not the word for it, chaotic family backgrounds in the sort of community that you're in, having a family structure where you can teach cooperative behavior, respectful behavior, and you do it in a way that isn't in taught lesson time. So you're not conflicting with that. I've got to get through the curriculum stuff. You're teaching social skills, but you're in a different time. That can be a problem doing it. So it's just three easy things for people to do. One of the things you mentioned about all teachers should do training. I really think they should. That's one of the things over the last 15 years I've seen. Uh, in most situations, only the Senko gets training on SEN. Because anything with SEN is just the Senko's job. Even oh, though, dear. as we discussed in a previous podcast, there's likely to be a child with autism in every class. Mm -hmm. so therefore, every teacher should get more training around SEN. Absolutely. So that's a big thing. I think schools really need to sit there and take a thing. And somebody who used to work here at B Squared is currently going through teacher training at the moment. Oh, fantastic. And uh, she comes back in the summer, so yeah. I get a chance to grill her. And she's done exactly, after two years, one lecture, special needs. That's it. Everything else is optional. So she's going to be going into school. Luckily, she's worked with B Squared. I'm not saying we're amazing. But it's given her exposure to a lot of things and we run training. So she's had a lot of exposure to it. So she's going to go in much more informed 
and already she's got to be shocked by what she's heard in the classroom. So though the Rochford Review back in 2016 recommended better CPD and ITT, we're still waiting. I haven't heard of it landing properly. I had heard of a few of the ITT providers approaching organisations like the AET to train their teacher trainers, to incorporate that as part of their programme. That's fantastic. I love that. But the government would not mandate any particular training being involved. And I think that's a rash waste of an investment. The government made a substantial investment in developing that programme in the same way they did way, way back with all of the materials that they produced for dyslexia and for autism and they did all those original programmes. They spent millions of pounds originally on that, spent thousands of pounds on the AT programme. Why not just roll those out and make sure everybody gets a good basic grounding so they're not left wondering what to do? Because I often think that people will do better when they know better. If you don't know what to do, how can you do that? And it's the responsibility of leadership to say, right, okay, we are going to skill up. We know it's going to save us time, effort, distress, pain, and misery. And actually, you know what? Your results will improve because you're not spending your time fixing things that you shouldn't have to fix. because You haven't freaked out some poor child because you don't know how to deal with them. They're end of the epistle. <laughs> actually, no, they're really doesn't end of the epistle. I'm fairly sure there's some more epistle to come. <laughs> it's kind of... One of the things I'm hoping will happen in the future is magic money the government's going to be promising education. Oh, that magic money tree. Where did yes. that come from? Don't ask. I'm hoping that some of that money will be put into changing this. So hopefully schools will finally realise that more this does not better results. Yeah. Actually it makes it worse. Absolutely. So we should stop that. I think the problem is comes it's a money thing. So if you've got lots of children buying EHCPs but the funding, you can't get the EHCP or that's worth six thousand pounds and you're struggling to provide the support children need, it's going to not go great. So I'm hoping with this extra funding that schools will be able to do the right thing. Might be able to put more in that pastoral care, that nurture, and actually try and get to the root of the problems. Do that more pastoral stuff that actually really makes a difference. I did think a couple of years ago, a couple that schools realised that actually just teaching the math, the math, the math, the math did actually result in an improvement, actually removing the barriers. Oh, absolutely. So giving the children a calm time during the day. So actually leave home half an hour early, come and have breakfast in school. That made a much better difference than having an extra vision session. So hopefully schools will remember that bit of extra and put more effort into doing that. Hopefully doing things like that and all that, as you said, the restorative da and the de-escalation hopefully see an improvement. It's really interesting because if you look at the exclusions figures and how they've changed over time, they were about the same level about 10 years ago. And then they came down. And the time at which they came down was when schools started investing in all those things like nurture training, all those programs, all the Thrive, all the restorative justice, in having specialist TAs who had a really high level of skills and expertise, often not recognised, because sometimes those TAs were phenomenally good. Often the TAs would be somebody who had an autistic member in their family or had a child with special needs, who was interested, passionate. They were the safe person for that child with special needs to come and talk to when they got into the classroom. 
they were the person who would interpret them and who would actually explain them to the rest of the teaching staff or to the senko or to the head or whoever. And those people have gone now. A lot of them are gone because they've posts have been slashed. And that one safe person has gone. So now this poor child comes into a system that doesn't understand them. They've got teachers who haven't been trained in what to do with them. Their sensory issues are kicking off. They've got children who are bullying them. They're being exploited. By the way, Will's going to hell in the handbasket because we're all going to die. And Greta says we're all going to go up in flames soon. And they will take that seriously. They'll think that's literal because actually it probably is unless we do something fast. And then people wonder why they're feeling anxious. I mean, excuse me? I'm over 50. I should, probably shouldn't admit that. But I am over 50 and I'm feeling anxious about that. So, you know, this is not the world that I'm going to live into. This is the world they're going to live into. And how on earth we think that they're not going to react, that we're not going to see an escalation in behaviours, that we're not going to see an escalation in anxiety, we're not going to see an escalation in people who just can't cope with all of this, is mystifying to me. Because the only way that people react, as we talked about it before, the stress react, three stress reactions, fight, flight and flee. You know, they're going to be doing one of those. Those who would fight end up being excluded. That's, that's that part of it. Sometimes those who flee get excluded. Yeah, well, yes. We did have, I did have <laughs> someone who escaped. So when I do training face-to-face, and I do quite a bit of training face-to-face, and I, I'm in a room with parents or teachers, and I say, anybody here got a runner? And then there's a whole host of hands that go up. Yes, I've had a runner. I've had to talk my boy down and, and return him. But they hadn't actually realised he'd gone. You know, safeguarding issue, much. And it wasn't the first time, the second time, or the third time. And this is a really, really good story. So it's kind of, the, I do have sympathy that you can't always keep your eye on absolutely everybody, but you are responsible for making sure they don't get killed on the way home when they've run away. <laughs> it's kind of, and if they're not in school and they're meant to be, that's an issue in terms of exploitation as well. So it's kind of, oh, it's fine. He always found me. He rang me and told me what had happened. It was always because he was overwhelmed and didn't want to actually heal anybody. So he was exiting stage left rather than get into worse trouble. So it's a, it all comes out all right in the wash. But, you know, we just have to think a bit our way through these things in a slightly different way, I think. One of the things I heard a school do, which I thought was really interesting, I don't know how practical it is, but it worked for them, was they obviously had their vulnerable children. Yeah. And each teacher signed, chose vulnerable children or two, depending on how many. And then they, had to make sure that each day had to have three or four things, interactions with that child a day. Sometimes some of these children sit at the back of the class and not say anything to anyone and not be the heard. whole day. But actually that person, they had to look out for that person, seek them out, a little conversation. And it sounds like nothing. It goes back to one of those lovely pictures you see on Facebook, lovely things. And it might not be able to change the world. But you can change the world for one person. Yes. And it's just that four things you say to them a day, yep. you cannot imagine the impact that might have on them. Just to you, you might go, mm. you're not talking to anyone. That's huge. That's someone looking out for you, someone going, someone likes me, someone's interested in me. That might make a big difference. The only caveat to that is you'd have to work out who's the right person. Yes. So that's why I said it makes it chosen, not given. Yeah. There was somebody I was working with who had, they had really good pastoral care in this particular environment, but the pastoral care staff were the people they really didn't get on with. 
Yeah. And there was somebody else who was in a different part of the school who would have been a really good mentor for me, a really good link person. But the person, the place to send them wasn't to the pastoral staff because they just didn't do that. <laughs> it's always a bit interesting. You kind of have to manage that human aspect. And I think that's, that's something that's missing. I think we need to remember that we're dealing with humans. And I think as parents, when we go into schools and we're having a bit of trouble with a particular teacher, we need to remember they're human too and they've got yeah. issues of their own, you know. It's that like that wonderful picture from Alien where you've got Ripley and the alien. And I often think sometimes conversations with schools are a bit like that. Sometimes you can't tell which one's the alien and which one's the teacher. It's no. kind of, hmm, could go either way. Yeah. So for some teachers, that parent is behaving like the jumping alien. And for some parents, it's the teacher behaving like that. And we have the capacity to be both of those. So I would say, if in doubt, take a hint from the Dalai Lama and if in doubt, just be kind. Yes. And it's not always easily done. No. But as we were saying earlier, I think it comes down to leadership. And I think we need to challenge policy to make sure that that is an appropriate thing that is rewarded. Have you got anything positive to end on? Yes, oh. actually, I would. So sometimes if a child gets excited, they may end up in alternative provision. And some alternative provision is incredibly good. So there are some children for whom the school system just does not work. Now, I would very, very much counsel against schools automatically saying, because that child is a pain in the pieces, they are somebody for whom that does not work. Because often the definition of what that is is very narrow and leadership depends, as we've said. But there are some environments that will suit other individuals better. And sometimes... The right people in those environments can change a life. There are some provisions that are great. There are some provisions that are not great. So I would thank everybody who is in one of those great provisions, whether they're an alternative provision, whether they're a forest school, whether they're an online school, whether they're a mainline school, whether they're just that one teacher who walks on water as far as you're concerned because they're doing their job brilliantly and they're teaching it fantastically. And it may be the one part in that day that makes sense to them. Sometimes that provision, even if it's another school, might not be better, worse. But you might, the child might have been removed from that toxicity of that school. Mm. Might have been removed from a load of children who were making their life difficult, from a teacher who would listen, understood. Yeah. Just by moving that child to another school, crew or other provision, you've removed that toxicity. But it has to be voluntary and it has to be done in a yeah. way that is supportive for the child, not as a Let's get them out of this thing. There's a, one of the things oh. that we did from the AT exclusions guidance. The wonderful piece about reintegration. So that's how you reintegrate a child who's been excluded back into education so that they can flourish. And the one big thing is more of the same does not work. So if you're going to take a child back into your school who has found been excluded in that school because it's all gone pear-shaped, all gone repeat-tong, then you have to do something different as a school or you're just asking for a future failure because the chances are they don't know what they've done wrong. They're not necessarily choosing the behaviour for which you've excluded them and you haven't changed the environment that's caused that behaviour in the first place. So you have to do something different. And so if you, as a school, have got yourself into a position where you've excluded somebody, you have to ask yourself what you can change. And you may actually not be changing it for that child you may be changing it for other children that you come across because that will help everybody. 
I suppose in lots of different things you can change. If you're a primary school and you've got two classes, moving a child from one class yeah. to another, changing that friendship. But you've got to make sure the child doesn't feel they're being it's a positive, it's a new opportunity, it's a fresh start, it's a it's a new opportunity to make new something like that. So they're not feeling oh, I've been put in class and they go in with their head down. So that's not yeah. helped them. You've got to go in feeling they were part of that decision. Yeah. It's gonna be a good thing. And actually, that was bad being in there, and this is better. I was the part of a panel with the NHT. I was talking to exclusions in their SEN group. And we were talking about how important it is to have the capacity to have a no-blame change. So rather than it being exclusion where a child has failed and they're being penalised for their bad behaviour, you accept that that scenario, that environment is wrong for them and you enable them to do a different environment or to have something different without it being the case that that child has failed. So that the provision is actually not suitable, not that that child has failed. And I think that is something that's important. I think there's lots of opportunities for that, but mm. perhaps schools don't see it or for some reason don't choose to do that. Because it may be they have to move a child the other way. Yes. And then you've got to break up a place. I can understand that. It sounds so simple from us saying it, but actually when you get into a school and you've got the parents in the class, I can imagine actually it starts getting very difficult, balancing everyone's needs and it not being seen as a negative thing. Yeah. Yeah, you can do that. And that can be done very successfully. So three cheers to everybody who does that because <laughs> it's wonderful. There are some schools doing an amazing job keep children in and to do the very best for them and thank god for all your worth your waiting gold i think sometimes little things you do like de-escalate that purple mm. folder is it's hard to understand the impact that's had mm. as you somehow had a crystal ball said if i didn't do that where would he be in six years then you'd realize oh yes and it'll make it really easy for everyone to see why they should be doing an extra thing to actually it's not that hard such a difference yeah it's often about the people, not about the money. So I'm going to wrap the show up. <laughs> so once again, thank you for coming down. Yes, thank you for having um, me. been really interesting talking about exclusions. Uh, very positive. We worked our way through to a we positive worked, conversation. And hopefully, as you said, and I said, going back to sort of five, ten years ago when we had the funding and had all these pastoral care, exclusions went down. Yes. So hopefully with this funding that's going to be coming, that's where schools can put the money. And again, we'll start to see the exclusions coming down as they actually start solving, helping, rather than just moving. We'll look forward to that. So everything we've mentioned, we'll be putting links in our show notes. So you'll be able to find all of that on the website. And there'll also be a link to Sarah Jane's book, A Different Joy, A Parent's Guide to Living Better with Autism, Dyslexia, ADHD, and more. And there'll also be a link to the DFE Exclusions Guidance. If you want to get hold of Sarah Jane, I'll be putting her email address in the show notes. You can also find her on Twitter at Sarah Jane Critch. She has a Facebook page, Different Joy. That's right. She's on Pinterest as Sarah Jane Critch. And she's on Instagram, Sarah Jane Critchley. So I'll put all of those on the show notes as well. So you'll be able to get hold of Sarah Jane. Because Sarah Jane is also launching. Autistic and Unleashed Masterminds. So what's that? So a mastermind is where a group of people who have something in common, who want to develop and move themselves onto the next level, get together and work on things as a group. 
And what I want to do now is to open that up to adult autistic women because we have such huge strengths and skills, but often are struggling in different areas. And I have met so many autistic women who are phenomenal that if we can get all of us in the room together and actually help each other develop and grow better as a group than we can on our own. And I've met so many people who just say, oh, I feel isolated because it's just me. And actually, no, there's loads of you out there and you're phenomenal. And I can help you move on to the next big thing. That's almost going to sound like it's turn into another book. Well, I've already done two books on autistic <laughs> women. It may be the fourth one. I'll wait and see how it goes. But I can't, I can't wait to have people come along and join me in that. It's already getting really exciting. So please come and join me. If you're an autistic woman or you have a diagnosis or you are self-identifying, either works. We know diagnosis is hard to get. So come along. So you can find out more about that on Sarah Jane's website, which yep. is www.differentjoy.com. So thank you for listening to the show. If you haven't subscribed already, subscribe to this podcast by going to our website, www.sendcast.com, where you can also sign up to our newsletter to keep up to date with all the latest news. You can also follow us on Twitter, at The Sendcast, on Facebook, Sendcast, on Instagram, Sendcast, and LinkedIn, just search for Sendcast. If you'd like to get in touch with us, let us know how amazing we are, or we're not. Let us know oh, your yes, thoughts. <laughs> Suggest your topics or anything else please send an email to hello at sendcast.com. And if you enjoyed the Sendcast, you're probably going to enjoy the virtual Send conference. So it's created in the same ethos that actually we want to share knowledge and guidance with you in the easiest, most effective way possible. Sendcast is lovely and free. The virtual Send conference is not, but it is really cost-effective. So you can access the, Send, the virtual Send conference across the internet. So instead of having, actually having travelled down to London or Manchester or Birmingham, the conference comes to you. We run it in March and November. So we run two full days of conference. It runs like a normal conference, but you can access the content whenever you want. So you can watch videos whenever it suits you. And what's great is you might be the Senko, you might watch a video, there might be a video on how to support ADHD in your classroom. And then you might be going, actually, this would be really good for Sarah Jane because she's got people with ADHD in her classroom. It would be really useful. So she can then watch that video in her own time. So it really makes a lot more sense. And Lorraine Peterson said it's a 21st century solution, which is really positive. And conference isn't expensive because we're not hiring a hotel and various other things. We're not charging you £300 per person. We're charging you £60 per school. So a lot more cost-effective, accessible. And as a listener to the Sendcast, we're offering you a 10% discount. So when you purchase content, just use the discount code SENDCAST10. So SENDCAST and then one zero. So check out the Virtual Send Conference. You'll also see on the website, there's some sample videos you can watch. It's got lists of all the topics we've discussed. So you can really find out what's there. Purchase. So thank you for listening to the podcast. We'll be back next week with another episode of the SENDCAST. So it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. Bye.